Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Search for Captain Slocum by Walter Magnus Teller, and we're on the second chapter. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 2. Toward the Goal of Happiness At the age of 18, on a voyage from Liverpool to the East Indies, Slocum was promoted to second mate. He soon became chief mate. In this capacity, he twice sailed around the Horn on British ships, trading coal out, grain home between Liverpool, Cardiff and San Francisco. In 1864, when in the middle of the Atlantic, on the bark Agra with Captain Shaw, he had a very close call. He was on the upper topsail yard gathering in sail when a gust struck and pitched him off. His fall was broken and his life saved by collision with the main yard, which he struck on his head, cutting a gash over his left eye. The scar remained for the rest of his life. When he reached San Francisco again, he decided to make it his hailing port. He became an American citizen. For a while, he stayed ashore in California, acquired a partner and built a gill-net fishing boat for salmon. It was his first try at an occupation which had fascinated him from the beginning. Next, in attractiveness after seafaring, came shipbuilding, Slocum wrote. I longed to be master in both professions. He took the boat out for one season on the Columbia River, but hearing that there was more money in hunting sea otters near Vancouver Island, he went off in that direction. The lure of these inshore adventures, however, did not last long. Slocum's real ambition was command of a ship. This he achieved in 1869, when, at the early age of 25, he became captain of a coasting schooner plying between San Francisco and Seattle. Coasters were tough in those days, but what he wanted he usually got if will and determination could bring it about. His next command, the Bark Washington, 332 tons, was a step upward. In December 1870, she sailed from San Francisco for Sydney, Australia, with a general cargo. From Sydney, she was to sail to Cook Inlet in Alaska to fish for salmon. But something of moment happened in Sydney. Slocum got married. It is typical of him never to have mentioned where or how he met his wife, Once again, the words are lost, only the facts remain. They were married. I, James Greenwood, being minister of the Bathurst St. Baptist Church, Sydney, do hereby certify that I have this day at 56 Upper Fort Street, Sydney, duly celebrated marriage between Joshua Slocum, bachelor, master mariner of Massachusetts, United States, and Virginia Albertina Walker, spinster of 19 Buckingham Street, Strawberry Hill, Sydney, after declaration duly made as by law required, dated this 31st day of January, 1871. The consent of Mr. William Henry Walker, 19 Buckingham Street, Strawberry Hill, Sydney, was given to the marriage of Virginia Albertina Walker with Joshua Slocum, the said Virginia Albertina Walker being under the age of 21 years. Virginia's father, William Walker, was a 49er who had wandered from New York to California to the gold mines of Australia, and had finally gone into business in Sydney. Her sister became a contralto and sang in the opera, and she had a younger brother named George. 
As so often happened in the romances of sea captains of that day, the young lady, who generally knew her husband perhaps one, two or three weeks, picked herself up, packed her belongings, kissed Mama and Papa goodbye, stepped aboard her new husband's ship and sailed away forever. That is what Virginia did. She was, however, spectacularly well suited to the strenuous life she had chosen. Born in Staten Island, New York, she is said to have been, on her mother's side, descended from the Leni Lenape tribe of that region, and proud of her Indian blood. She loved the outdoors. As a girl in Australia, she was trained to ride horses, and on the weekends, she rode with associates into the Blue Mountains, exploring and sleeping on the ground, much as the natives did. She told of cooking eggs in a piece of cloth and held in a boiling hot spring, and I remember seeing her riding equipment, which she always had with her aboard ship, her son wrote. If the Bark Washington resembled other ships of its class and date, the quarters Virginia now moved into were constraining, to put it mildly. The living accommodations for the captain generally consisted of a cabin, adequate though seldom commendable, which contained a large desk, barometer, chronometers, a sofa, and in the case of Slocum, probably many books. Sometimes there was a piano. The only light came from a transom through which Virginia might have had an excellent view of the legs of the man at the wheel, and perhaps a little sky beyond, crisscrossed by the ship's rigging. Such cabins were usually damp and airless. The sleeping quarters were a stateroom aft, largely taken up by a bed so swung as to counteract the rocking of the vessel. There was room for a trunk and washstand and a wife, if she chose to accompany her husband, but most masters stayed alone. This cabin and stateroom was partitioned off from the saloon amidships, which opened into the cubby holes occupied by the mates and the galley. Into this tiny space would crowd the captain, the exceptional wife, and the mates for meal after meal, day after day, month after month, on the long voyages. In general, ships of this sort were considered no place for women, and crews often resented the presence of the captain's wife aboard, even though in some cases, by their good sportsmanship and usefulness, some mended and cared for the sick and sometimes, like Virginia, became very adequate navigators, they won the respect and affection of the men. It was, at any rate, not an easy role. Virginia would have been known as Mrs. Captain Slocum. It was a rarely courageous wife who accompanied her husband on more than one voyage, but Virginia, for the rest of her life, sailed wherever Captain Joshua went. The honeymoon trip across the West Pacific, from Sydney in the southwest to Cook Inlet, Alaska, in the northeast, in search of salmon, might have been enough to dissuade a less hardy girl. As Slocum's oldest son later put it, the fishing was carried out successfully except for the loss of the vessel. It was only four years since Russia had sold Alaska, and the waters were not well known to American masters. The charts were still very sketchy. The Washington dragged her anchors in a gale and was stranded on the shoals some 200 miles from Kodiak. This caused an awkward problem in the transportation of the salmon, as a boat larger than the ship's boats was needed. Thereupon, the captain and his three mates fell to and built a 35-foot whaleboat, but just as she was finished, a revenue cutter appeared. Virginia was taken to Kodiak and thus spared the open boat voyage across the icy waters. Slocum, however, stayed by his doomed vessel while the catch was prepared for shipping. He then used the whaleboat to transport the fish to a couple of sealers with empty holds. The sealers took the salmon to San Francisco while the captain, his wife and crew 
got passage home on a Russian bark. The owners of the Washington, though they had lost their ship, were apparently satisfied with their master. They gave him another command, the Barkentine Constitution, a small packet running between San Francisco and Honolulu. This must have been considered ideal by Captain Slocum's young wife. Honolulu, at that time, was a rendezvous for all ships wandering the Pacific, the maritime equivalent of the general store and post office. It was a social oasis for the painfully isolated and usually very lonely captain's wives. Here one could bring out of the damp trunk the good Sunday dress, press out its two-month or six-month-old wrinkles and stroll about the streets or drink tea with friends on the lawn of the hotel. Here a lady could shop for dress goods, discuss patterns and enjoy the rarest of luxuries, female companionship. Virginia gave birth to her first child on board the Constitution, lying at anchor in San Francisco Harbour. It was a year, almost to the day, since she had married. The baby was a boy, and the proud young parents called him Victor. The following year, 1873, Slocum was put in command of the B. Imar, a fully-rigged single-topsail East Indies trader sailing from Sydney to Amoy. The ship was named after the commercial house that owned her, Ben Imar and Co. A second son, born on board at the end of that year, was in turn named after the ship. Benjamin Imar he was christened and then known throughout his life as B. Imar, just as the ship was known. A third child, Jesse, named for Virginia's sister back home, was also born on board in June 1875, while the ship lay in Philippine waters. Soon thereafter, the B. Imar was sold in Manila by her owners. In Manila, Slocum took time out to ply his second trade, that of shipbuilder. He met a British marine architect, Edward Jackson, and contracted to build a steamship hull for him. For this purpose, Slocum set up a primitive boatyard at Alongapo, a jungle village at the head of Subic Bay, 60 miles from Manila. The site had advantages. There was plentiful and excellent timber on the nearby mountainside, and there was a natural launching beach. But there was some disadvantages too. The heavy, damp air of a monsoon tropical climate, the reptile-infested beach, poisonous plants and unfriendly local contractors who resented the successful foreign bidder. To start with, Slocum, who always kept his family with him, had a nipper-thatched house built for his wife and children. The sills were seven feet off the ground, high enough for safety and health, and also to provide an accommodation for chicken and pigs below. Even so, centipedes and scorpions had a habit of crawling into our clothes and getting into our shoes. It was routine to shake and search everything while dressing, Victor recalled. Virginia's early camping experiences stood by her now as she made the best of jungle life for herself and her three young children. Shipbuilding is slow work. The Slocums lived at Alongapo a year. Trees to build with had to be felled and hewn into square logs with axes. Water buffalo then dragged them down to the shore to be ripped into scantling and plank by Tagalog sawyers with handsaws. But in spite of difficulties, which included plots to attack the family and wreck the ship, the 80-ton hull was built, launched and towed to Manila to be fitted to the engine. As part of his payment, Slocum was given the 90-ton schooner Plateau, designed and built by the same Mr. Jackson and lying nearby in the Pasig River. At first, Slocum had no plans for the schooner, but his family agreed that it was better to live afloat in however small a craft than on the beach at Alongapo. So they picked up some inter-island trips and then a charter 
to salvage the cargo of a British bark which was hanging on a reef in the China Sea. After bringing the cargo back to Manila, Slocum took another cargo out to Hong Kong, his family aboard as usual. In Hong Kong in 1877, the sight of some old splitting knives in one of the lockers of the Pato changed Slocum's plans. He decided to go fishing again. Picking up a rough crew of seal and sea otter hunters, he fitted out as an Okhutsk sea fisherman. From Hong Kong, Slocum sailed for Petropavlovsky, 2,000 ocean miles away. After two weeks on the Okhutsk grounds, he had 25,000 cod salted down and was heading for a west coast market 3,000 miles further on. As the price offered in Victoria, B.C. did not suit, he sailed to Portland, where he turned travelling salesman and peddled his Cape Cod turkey. He soon sold the whole cargo at a handsome profit. Meanwhile, in her life on board ship, Virginia sewed, played the piano and reared her children. She also displayed some unusual and curiously fortunate abilities. To spend a few hours with sharks in mid-ocean when they were present, Mother and I teamed up. B. Amar recollected. It was my job to get the shark interested in coming close up. I used a new tin can with a string on it to attract the shark close under the stern, where Mother dispatched it with her 32 caliber revolver, with which she never needed but one shot. How I loved to see her do it, and without any signs on her part of showing superior skill. Quite untypical memories for a boy to have of his mother, and quite untypical even for captains' wives, most of whom sat under their parasols or improvised awnings, embroidering, reading the magazines a little, or fussing with their children. Virginia and her son, B. Amar, were the only members of the family who could swim. B. Amar adds that she was an excellent cook of the rough-and-ready sort. It is hard to imagine a more perfect wife for Joshua Slocum. Many years later, after she had died, B. Amar remembered his father looking at a photograph. Tears streamed over his face. Finally, he said, Your mother had the eyes of an eagle, and she even saw things I could never see. Mother's eyes were a brilliant golden colour. I have seen such eyes on our golden eagles, and she knew how to use them too, but very calmly. Somewhere during all this voyaging, Virginia had given birth to twins. The only mention of them, however, is when they died off the coast of Siberia, thousands of miles of ocean away from anything Virginia had known. The ocean is no place to raise a family, is the son's quiet comment. Virginia, despite the hard toll it took of her, might have disagreed. From Portland, in 1878, they set out once more for Honolulu, a 2,400-mile run. There, Slocum sold the pato. It was specified that payment be made in gold. Upon receiving it, the captain put it in a bag and carried it to his wife and tossed it into her lap with... Virginia, there's the schooner. The return to the States was made by steamer. Back in San Francisco now, Slocum bought the packet Amethyst, a fully rigged vessel of 350 tons register. This was not then considered a small ship, and she was Slocum's largest to date. She had been built in Massachusetts by the renowned shipbuilder Thatcher McGowan and launched in 1822, and was, at this time, one of the oldest American ships afloat. The captain fitted her out for the Philippines-to-China timber trade. On the first voyage with the Amethyst, Slocum carried cargo and passengers to Manila. In addition to his family, he took along his brother, Ingram, as cook, and his sister, Ella, to help his wife. 
It was proving a very strenuous life for Virginia. I believe that she had a weak heart, B. Amar wrote. She often fainted when trouble disturbed her. In Manila, in July, Slocum made arrangements for carrying timber from the hardwood forests in the province of Tayabas in Lower Luzon, and Virginia wrote her mother this letter. Laguemanac, Philippine Islands, July 17th, 1879. Dearest mother and all, you must excuse me for writing you so short a letter. I have been very sick ever since the 15th of last month. I feel a little better now, but it has been such a strange sickness. I have not been able to eat anything till lately. Dear Josh has got me everything he can think of. My hand shakes so now I can hardly write. Dear mother, my dear little baby died the other day, and I expect that it is partly the cause. Every time her teeth would start to come, she would cry all night. If I would cut them through the gum, they would grow together again. The night she died, she had one convulsion after another. I gave her a hot bath and some medicine, and she was quite quiet, in fact. I thought she was going to come around, when she gave a little sigh, and was gone. Dear Josh embalmed her in brandy, for we would not leave her in this horrid place. She did look so pretty after she died. Dearest mother, I cannot write any more. Signed, Virginia. On the next page, Virginia wrote in the corner, Victor's letter. The little boy had written, July 17th, 1879. Dear Grandmama, we are going to Japan. I am tired of this place. I hope you are well, and Grandpapa, Aunt Jessie and Uncle George. Goodbye, from Victor. B. Amar recollected that while the amethyst rode at anchor in Teobas Bay, two natives paddled out with eggs, jungle fowl, fruit, and a boa constrictor with its tail tied to an outrigger. The captain wanted to take the lot. He was assured that the snake, tied by his dangerous end, was safe, but Virginia was not convinced, and she got Josh to give up the notion of buying the specimen. Anything to make a dollar, danger or no, wrote B. Amar. Father was a trader in any line. The timber trade, after a year or two, fell off. Freight charters were undertaken, coal from Nagasaki to Shanghai and from Nagasaki to Vladivostok, natural ice from Hokodate to Hong Kong, and gunpowder from Shanghai to Tainan. The final return to Hong Kong was made late 1880. The harbour, as Slocum sailed in, was crowded with ships from all over the world. There were, of course, no tugs. Father ordered all hands stand by all stations, including the anchor, which the first mate had to attend to, B. Amar recalled. Try to picture the amethyst under full sail, heading for a narrow passageway between three British warships on the starboard side and a fully rigged merchant ship on the port side. When these anchored vessels saw the amethyst bearing down on that narrow waterway between them, their crews expected to see a very severe smash-up of at least three vessels. Father took the wheel, mother stood by him, her silence gave him confidence. He wished to reach an anchorage in the middle of the entire fleet before him. The admiral of one of Her Majesty's ships stood at his station, looking for a crash of spars and torn sails. Father just cleared the HMS by inches, then skilfully cleared the merchant ship by a few inches, passed on to the vacancy, and with downhelm, swung into the wind, and the let go the anchor order was given. It was then that Father remembered his breach of marine etiquette, for he did not salute the HMS in passing. Father wrote an apology to the Admiral, whose reply read like this, Any man who can sail a ship, under full sail, through a passageway too dangerous for me to contemplate, 
need not apologise to the entire British Navy. You are hereby invited to join me aboard the HMS, date given, and the lady who stood beside you on that occasion. Signed by the Admiral. That may give you a picture of the strength my mother had, and of her judgment valued by father. One peep from her would have changed the whole picture. The stakes might be high, but Virginia made bold decisions. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.